So today, we're going to carry on in our study in the book of Revelation. We're doing a study in Revelation alongside our sister church in Austin, Mosaic. Uh, We're going to continue to do studies alongside Mosaic and be a lot closer to them as the months and and days and weeks go on, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But this series has been a wonderful thing that we've done together. We, we did really the first part and the last part of the book of Revelation. Maybe someday we'll come back and pick up a lot of the symbolism from the middle part of the book that I don't feel is adequately prepared at this time to handle. But today we're actually going to be in our last sermon in the book study in, in our Revelation series. And it happens to be the last chapter of the book of Revelation, the last chapter, the last several words of the Bible. Today, I've entitled this message, The City of God. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. We're in Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Then the angel, John, the apostle John is speaking, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord The God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Down to verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, says Jesus bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can sit as we pray. Lord, we can read about what is more real than what we see and feel. And we need your help to see it more clearly than we see our own lesser realities. There is a river whose streams make glad the people of God. There is a river, there is a city. Lord, we live in context and in the middle of the fear 
and anxieties of our lesser city. We're asking for your help to live in light of the eternal city, appropriate to the one who sit on, sits on the throne that's hearing our prayer now. We're asking that more than me communicating these words, that you would add a blessing to the reading of your word and help us to be steadied by a future knowledge that's greater than our current experience so that the nations would truly be healed and we could find joy in you. Amen. Amen. I want to give a little more context of why we're going through the book of Revelation and how it helps you today. I like to navigate today based on what we know the ending is. In sports, we say, navigate by your end game. I love how my wife yesterday was talking to my oldest daughter, Hadassah, about her practicing her Irish dancing. And she was, she was kind of quizzing her, well, why do you practice? And, and uh, she was, without saying it, my, my daughter kind of said, well, to be done with practicing. And my wife was helping her see that that's kind of not a good way of training yourself. She said, Hadassah, what's your goal for by the end of the fall? What do you want to do? And she said, basically, I want to get to the next level. And my wife said, well, what do you have to do before now and the end of the fall to get to the next level? And she said, well, there's six different dances I have to win. She said, okay, well, what, for those six dances, if you have six days of the week, how, how are you going to practice now? And you can see my daughter's understanding getting uh, sparked by practicing now, not in just a way to kind of be done practicing, but to practice in a way that, that, that trains in light of her future victory. How much more, as the people of God, do we need to live today in light of our future victory? We, as the people of God, are so easily prone to live like the rest of the world, where we go to church sometimes to be done with church and get to lunch, right? Uh, or or we, we, we do things out of habit without an overwhelming context of the end game. What's great for us, though, is we can not only live out of a future victory that we are walking onto, but we can live from a past victory that Jesus paid for on the cross, he started and, and completely finished the work of victory on the cross. So unlike the Irish dance practice, we don't have to work toward a victory. We can work from his victory unto the culminating day in the city of God where all the other lesser victories are put to bed. And if we can live in light of his victory, we'll live a lot less in light of the lesser, maybe real challenges we face and anxieties we overcome. I pray that we as a people of God would live more appropriately to what is most real and most final. I've chosen the title, The City of God. Now, we're going to work through chapter 22 of Revelation extensively, but before I get to that, let me just point out another place where the city of God is seen. We can see the city in Revelation 22. But the city of God is also the title of an early work from a church father named 
Augustine of Hippo, or Augustine. Augustine was a black man in the 4th and 5th century. Uh, I heard years ago, uh, on campus you hear all sorts of absurd things from people. We have our own ideas, our own ideas but it doesn't mean we can have our own realities, right? And I heard one guy say, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion, which is, could not be further from historical truth. It's act, actually the opposite of that. Augustine, at, at the time, he was in North Africa, the first two or three centuries, Christianity was almost entirely a Middle Eastern and Northern African religion. Christianity didn't really start to penetrate Europe until the third and fourth century, where pale-skinned folks like me started becoming in the mix of the faith. Christianity was mostly based where it started, in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Augustine's work called The City of God is so important in context. Around the 3rd and 4th century, we actually saw so much growth in the Christian faith that Rome was really bowing to the power of this swordless faith, this swordless army that was penetrating all of the known world. Constantine, a Roman emperor, actually ended up, uh, what some people think is kind of a, was a political move, basically made Christianity the official religion of Rome. And so what you started to see in the generations following that was a syncretism, meaning kind of a a wrong combination of hope in Rome and hope in Christianity. I think we know a lot about what this is like. You know, like America, Jesus, and we kind of confuse the two so often. And when one nation like America starts to crumble in many ways... God wants us to not be so shocked. And this is just what happened in Rome. Rome was called the eternal city. Well, the eternal city in 411 was sacked by the vandals and literally fell apart. It was called the eternal city because it could never be overtaken, was the boast that was made. And it was overtaken in 411 with so much disillusionment. People really thinking God had abandoned Rome. God's word may not be true. Augustine wrote the work, The City of God, as a defense for the faith in the midst of great uncertainty and disillusionment. A 22-volume set that talked about the hope of God that's greater than the hope of pagan idols like Rome or anything else, and why we have an eternal city. And he brought hope to people who had previously found hope in lesser things. Now, I say all this background to you, church, to say, is it still pervasive for you and I to find hope in lesser things? Jobs, families, relationship, money, comforts. Yes. And God is still so gracious to allow certain other lesser things to crumble so that we can see the unshakable realities of the end game supersede our experiences today and make us more stable. That's why we're going through Revelation. And that's why I've entitled this message, The City of God. And as we work through chapter 22, we are going to see four things, four realities about the city of God. 
that you need to know. Number one, in general, before we talk about the final city, you need to know that God is a God that loves cities. Number one, God loves cities. He always has and he always will. This is a strange and wonderful picture that we see in Revelation 22. I mean, Mount Zion National Park was pretty amazing to take it all in. But close your eyes and imagine there is an endless stream of water flowing from a glorious, indescribable person. And it's flowing out the main street. It says it's in the middle of the street, which is hard for me to picture. And harder for me to picture is that there is a tree that, that is rooted on both sides of the stream, both sides of the main street, that goes deep down and then yields 12 kinds of fruit. This is a pretty strange and wonderful city. And first of all, you need to know that this is a culmination of God's greatest desire for his city because God has always loved cities. God loves cities. You need to know that the Bible is not a story, is, is not a, a collection of teachings. It's a story. It's not a collection of teachings for how you can be a better you and maybe improve yourself a little bit. The Bible is a story. It's a story that starts in a garden and it ends in a city. It's a story about God. It's not primarily a story about you. In fact, you will find great peace in your life when you see that you're not the center of your story. The Bible is a story about God. And here we see the city of God, and it gives us context for how God loves cities. You look throughout the whole Bible, you see that God loves cities. Even the cities that would, would, we would think are his ultimate enemy, there is still a love for those cities. When the people of God were dispersed into Babylon, God commanded his people to pray for the well-being of what? Of the city. God loves cities. Remember the book of Jonah? We, many of us, I didn't know the context of Nineveh and the Assyrians and how, how wicked and, and, and evil and mean and some of the brutal things the Assyrian people did to enforce dominance on others. And since I've learned some of these things, I can understand a little bit of why Jonah was so averse and kind of against going to show, his, you know, show the love to these people in Nineveh. The Assyrian people did not deserve love. Anyone here ever, ever been told that, that you need to go show love to someone you just didn't want to? Any kids? Me. Man, that's hard. Jonah was told, you go here and you will show them love. Preach my word. And he said, no. No way. He went the opposite direction. And we know the story that God supernaturally took him in a fish, delivered him to really the shores outside the, the, a distant walk to Nineveh. He ended up going to Nineveh to preach. He finds out that God did, his worst fear came true, that God did intend to have mercy on this city. And Jonah is used kind of like a cartoon character of sorts to show the power of God's love 
despite him, which is kind of like oftentimes the story of my life. God shows his goodness despite me. And so here, here at the end of the book in Jonah, Jonah complains that God showed mercy to this city and used him in this business. And the book ends with the question, should I not have love for this great city? God loves cities. Jesus called Jerusalem, another example, the city of the great king, speaking of David and and speaking really in context of Jesus. You'd think you'd have a lot of great love for Jerusalem, and yet the city completely turned its back on the, really, the founder of the city and on Jesus himself. Rejected Jesus, spurned him, sought to kill him. And knowing this, Jesus entered into the city knowing he would be bound and whipped and crucified. He entered the city and he wept over the city saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And even as he was being nailed to the cross, he said, forgive them. They know not what they do. Can you imagine saying that over people that are rejecting you? Jesus loves cities. And it's not that Jesus doesn't love nature. You know, and he he doesn't love the countryside. But he has a distinct love for cities. And follow with me here. You might ask, well, why? Why is that? This is going to be really, really profound. Cities happen to be where a whole bunch of people tend to reside. And God loves people. Sacrificially, he loves people, and therefore he loves cities. At least that's my deduction. As I read through the Bible and see his love for cities, God loves cities Because God loves people. Now God loves nature. And Zion National Park and stuff like that. But God loves people. I mean, even in in our experience, we, we, we did the Disneyland thing, which we loved. But my favorite part of the trip was these national parks. And getting to, to, to just take in the majesty of it all. It was refreshing. It was powerful. It was beautiful. But one of the greatest, most powerful things really is, is coming back and seeing the beauty in God's people that I get to see right now. The beauty of what he's doing in human hearts, in a people he's called to himself, a diverse people, but a singular people, that we have been singularly called out and saved by the same Savior. There is a beauty that's unmatched through what God does in people. God loves cities. And the city that he has prepared for himself is greater than Eden. Eden was the garden in which he created in seed form all of us here today. The garden from which we've fallen and been banished from and the place he has prepared for us, the city, is greater. In fact, some, some people mention that this city is as big as the state of Texas. How many of y'all know that's a pretty big city? The final city, the city of God, is huge. If the only difference is that there is no water shortage like our Edwards Aquifer situation that goes up and down. There is endless abundance in this city. Then the angel showed me the river 
of the water of life. The river is mentioned before the city is mentioned. The water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Jesus is an endless wellspring of abundance and life. We know this literally. We know this spiritually. Here, he never runs out in his wisdom and his power. In experiencing him, you will see this. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. What you have here in this city is the enmity between mankind and nature being restored. You have the tree of life bringing healing to the nations. Literally, the leaves are healing nations. The enmity between peoples and and nations is being restored through the leaves of the tree. It's a strange and wonderful culmination where the city and God's nature is coming together for a perfect place with perfect healing. The river is in the middle of the street. This is something that I'm trying to visualize, and it's strange. Like, so where do you walk? Maybe you walk on the river. If we reign with Jesus, and we know he walked on water, I mean, that's just a maybe. We'll move on, because that's, a, that's just kind of one of my thoughts. I've always wanted to do it. Maybe we will. No longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing that's not of God. No, no presence of sin or of unforgiveness, of vileness, of looking wrongly at something, but having that battle of, oh, how should I see this right? There's none of that. There is endless abundance and beauty flowing from Jesus, overtaking everything else. As we see too, we're going to see that there will become a day in this city where there will no longer be need of anything to be healed because the healing will culminate. But until then, you need to know, number two, number one, God loves cities. Number two, God wants us to be prepared for his city. God wants us to be prepared for his city. What God does in redemptive history from past to present to future is not, to be, not meant to be some sort of riddle that's complicated and that we can't understand. God wants you and he wants me to be prepared for his city. Verse 6. The angel said to John, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. He wants you to be prepared. Even verse 10, do not seal up the words of this prof- the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And again in verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. God wants us to be prepared for his city. He wants us to know in advance Just like the river is pure as crystal, he wants our understanding and our future knowledge of him to be pure like that. So that whatever we face from that, between now and that culminating day, will be a lesser reality in our emotions, in our mind, in our 
financial planning. He wants us to be prepared for this city. The time is near. This is so beautiful, a beautiful thing about God. God wants to be known personally. He wants us to be prepared and for us to grow in the knowledge of who he is and to know stuff. Granted, there's certain things that we have to always surrender until the final day. We surrender to mystery. Certain things that we can't know. But there is a person that we can know that knows all those things. And God wants us to know him, and God wants us to be prepared for his city. This city, this lesser city, the the world we live in, has all sorts of uncertainty, uh, confusion. That's been one of the biggest pains of my life so often is just the confusion about what to do, interpersonal relationships, right? Confusion, there's confusion, uncertainty, frailty, human weakness that seems to never go away. But God wants us to know the biggest things that can be known and to live in light of that. God wants us to be prepared for this city. I'm going to reread verses 4 and 5. We will see his face. His name will be on our foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp. God is the light of this city. How many of y'all can experience and identify with the pain of something just being kind of gloomy and dark? And it, it, it's like, it's not clear. God's light hasn't shined on it. In so many stages of my life and decisions I'm making, and there's just a, a dimness. This city will have so much light where everything is crystal clear. And God wants us to live in light of that today. He wants us to be prepared for his city. They will see his face. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that for now we know in part, we see dimly as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but then we will know fully. And he wants us to be prepared for that city. And I have a question for you. If you're going to live in light of this city and know the one and grow in the knowledge of the one who resides on the throne in this city, what do you have to unknow now? That's why every week we do confession and communion. What do you have to unknow and to disassociate with at the level of your soul or habits in order to grow in the knowledge of God. Maybe it's worry or fear or bitterness or literally vileness like it describes here. What do you have to unknow? God loves cities. He wants you to be prepared for his city and don't miss this because he's already healing and he's already preparing a people. Number three, his city is not just coming. It's already here. It's not just coming, it's also already here. Verse 11. Let the evil doer do evil still, and the filthy be still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. 
Now, I don't think this is saying the Bible delights in evildoers doing evil. I think what this is saying is, as the day draws nearer and nearer, our behaviors will be seemingly more irreversible. In essence, we'll we'll live out of our ultimate true city more and more. Because our, the city of God is already here and it's like a mustard seed and it's growing and it's expanding and many of us don't see it, but it's here and it's growing. And it's almost like verse 11 saying, let things play out. Let things play out. Let people live out of the ultimate city of their true residence and let's see which city overtakes the other. Let things play out. Revelation 21, Jesus, the previous chapter says, I am making all things new. In essence, he's already doing this work. He's already bringing this city to bear in our midst. Matthew 5, previous to that, Jesus had already said, you are a city on a hill. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I love what Morgan Stevens said from Mosaic, our lead pastor at Mosaic. He says, you can live now in a way that brings God's city into our city. How is that? How do we we live in light of God's city? Well, this is going to be another profound statement. Being godly. Being godly. Not, Not just trying, but being godly. Or, or as we like to summarize it, living a life that honors God and makes disciples. Verse 3, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. Now this, it's not that God's going to give you some sort of weird tattoo on your forehead, but this alludes to, in the Old Testament, there was one person who could approach the throne of God in the holiest of holy places once a year. It was the high priest. And they used to write the four letters in Hebrew for Yahweh on his head. And he would stand before God on Yom Kippur to, to give an account for the people of God. What this is saying in the final city is that we will all be sealed, and not just one day of the year, but eternally, irreversibly sealed to approach God and to see his face. And when we see his face, it won't be like how God warned Moses that the day you see my face, you will surely die, but that we'll have life from seeing his face and we'll worship him. Our worship of God will grow and our relationship with him in honor of him and worship of him will will give life to our being. We'll experience the life of God in this city, the overwhelming abundance. And that is something you, church, can do today. We can worship God and bring to bear the reality of his city upon our city. It's one of the greatest, it's the primary relationship as a disciple as well. Our relationship with God, we worship God because we see his face. And it also comes to bear with how we live as members of this city in our other relationships, our relationships with other believers. Did you know that in this city there will be no unforgiveness? There will be nothing that you are unforgiven in. 
And therefore, there can be nothing that you can be unforgiving in toward others. So we might as well get used to the discomfort of working through stuff in real ways with other people now. Other people that we worship alongside. And it's not just superficial things. Like, okay, we all worship God, like verse 3 says, but, you know, part of that means, is, is it my kind of worship style or his worship style? It's not just that it's too gospely or not gospely enough. It's that our worship of God is along others, alongside other people. I mean, in heaven, we're probably going to have to learn Mandarin to worship God in, in some, some parts of the day. There will be so many Chinese Christians. And we'll be around other people that we don't know and other people that we know very well and we've grown in forgiveness unto. The city of God will bring to bear your relationship with him and with others and with others that you're compelling to enter the gates. Jesus says, go to the highways and byways and compel people to come. This is why that we have mission that in our growth groups, we do needs in names where we pray for people that we're inviting into relationship with God. This is why we, we put uh, other extra grocery items on our grocery list to bring to the storehouse at church. Because God is preparing a city in his people that will never go away. God loves cities He wants us to be prepared for his city because his city is not just coming, it's already here. And finally, we enter his city by judgment. We enter his city by judgment. Verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense or my judgment with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is grace to live today, functionally, in light of coming judgment tomorrow. Knowing what God's going to do in the final day prepares me with supernatural perspective to live differently, redeemed today. But it's not just that. We don't just live in light of the, the future judgment where he makes all things right, I would argue that without understanding the, the doctrine of the judgment of God, we won't understand the love of God. And ultimately it comes from not just understanding future judgment, but entering the city gates based on the judgment that has already been made final on Jesus. Verse 14 Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by its gates. These are the last few things I'm going to point out. The right to the tree of life. First of all, it doesn't say, blessed are you if you clean your life up. Blessed are you when you are washed by the blood of that's already been fully paid and it's already fully abundant. Unless you are cleaned by the blood of Christ, you have no right to enter his city. You cannot clean yourself up. 
you can only be cleaned. You cannot be pure. You can only be purified by the pure one. And blessed are you when you wash your robes in what only he has provided. He lived a perfect life. Only he was qualified to die a final sacrificial death so that we could have access, that we could approach the gates and wash our robes and be white as snow. And it says, if we do that, we have the right to the tree of life. Jesus not only died for our sin, but he rose to new life so that he could extend us forgiveness of sin and new life. That we may have right to the tree of life. John 1 says, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons and daughters of God. And how is this? He gives us his judgment of righteous and takes our judgment of unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus left his city, his perfect city, to prepare and redeem a new city for us. That he could become the final curse so that in this new city there will be no more curse. Nothing cursed. Everything washed by his blood. He took our record upon himself so that he could give his record of righteousness to us. That's how we enter his city. Not by striving, but by resting in what he's done. My wife earlier quoted, almost without even knowing it, quoted St. Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Would you pray with me?